You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. During my final year of high school, I received the news that I had been accepted to New York University. I would be moving from small town, rural Pennsylvania to New York City, the Big Apple. And on the front end of this transition, I had to go to NYU's freshman orientation. This orientation was meant to help us to adjust to life in New York City so that we could enjoy some academic success. And during this orientation, there were the obvious things that were rolled out to orient us, like telling us how to register for classes and showing us where the different buildings were, the different classrooms were, and and showing us how to actually use our meal card to use our meal plan. But there were also less obvious aspects of that orientation that gave us a sense of what it would be like to live in New York City. And about halfway through orientation, I had this realization that surprised me. And the realization was this. As I was going to orientation, I had the mistaken idea that the move from, for, to college would really only affect one aspect of my life known as my academic life. But the longer that orientation went on, the more I started to discover that this wasn't just going to affect the academic aspect of my life. It was going to infect and affect the entirety of my life. After getting to New York and being a part of the rhythm and the flow of that place and being on the campus of that university, my life was never the same. It wasn't just an academic orientation in that little sliver of the pie of my life. It took the whole pie of my life. Now, when we are accepted by God, when we are brought into union with Christ by faith, we experience a sort of orientation to what faith is. And that can be formal through classes or educational opportunities that we take with regard to the faith, or it can be informal through relationships or just observation. And there are some obvious things that people who have been accepted by God do, like go to church on Sunday mornings and read the Bible and pray. But there are also less obvious expressions of what it means to have faith and what it means to be a part of the Christian community that we need to take into consideration. Because when we look at the landscape of much of American Christianity, it's pretty clear that many Christians are under the impression that faith only involves a change to a small, isolated part of their life called their spiritual life. And the rest of life is largely left unaffected. We imagine that we can live the rest of our lives safely maintaining the same old selfishness and individualistic mode of life. Like we can maintain the same old ambitions and the same materialism and captivity to money. But here's the thing. The Lord has revealed himself. The Lord has given us his word. The Lord 
has shared his story with us so that we would be oriented to the life of faith, to help us to integrate everything that God has said to every area of life. Any sin or dysfunction, any failure of ethics, morals, or, or mission are the direct result of our disorientation from the Lord and his story. So this spring, we are going to uh, work through a series starting today called The Gospel According to Genesis. And what I want us to do is I want us to, to orient to the foundational chapter of God's story, the patriarchal narratives. The story of the patriarchs beginning with Abraham and we will end with the story of Joseph. And my hope is that as we more and more orient to God's story, more and more orient to who God is, to God's character, to God's promises, to God's faithfulness, as we integrate that with our lives, that there will be a richer expression of our faith in witness, in mission, that we will be more joyful people, that our lives will begin to make sense, that we will have more resilience in our sufferings and in our struggles, that we will have greater encouragement and direction for living this life of faith. So this morning, we begin our series with the call of Abram, and we're going to approach this text through two points. We're going to consider orienting to God's grace and orienting to God's mission. That's what we're going to see in this narrative of Abram, who will become Abraham. I will switch in between Abram and Abraham. He's, when we first meet him, he's Abram. After God gives him a new name, he becomes Abraham, father of many. His name means, Abraham means father. Abram means father. Abraham means great father. So before he meets the Lord, he's daddy. After he meets the Lord, he's big daddy, okay? <laughs> so I will go in between the two of those, but we're going to begin with the narrative of Abram in chapter 11 and 12. So let's take a look at our first point, orienting to God's grace. Now, there is some context that leads up to our passage for this morning, and it's so crucial to understanding what happens. Just to be straight up with you, biblical scholars tell us that this passage right here is the center of the Pentateuch. It's the center of the first five books of the Bible, which is to say it's one of the most important passages in the Bible. It's a seedbed from which all of these themes grow throughout the rest of Scripture. If you want to understand the rest of the Bible, you want to understand what's happening in this passage. It's dense thematically, and it is a reference point for a number of the apostles and for the Lord Jesus himself as they teach the faith. Something significant begins here, but you won't understand it unless you get the context. Because after God creates the world in goodness, and he looks at everything is made, and he says, oh, Mm, mm, that's good. It's so good. After that moment, there is this falling off the cliff when humanity walks away from God. They decide to do life according to their own terms, to not listen to the voice of the Lord, to think that they know better, and the whole world is thrown into catastrophe. The curse descends on the world. And in chapter 3 through chapter 11, what we witness in the Bible, in this section of Scripture, is the downward spiraling of the entirety of humanity. The world is descending into chaos. It's like the toilet bowl going around like this. Everything is going down the drain. We go from disobedience to God's word in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, 
to one brother killing another in chapter 4. Violence then begins to spread. And by the time we get to chapter 5, there's this refrain as, as there is a genealogy. And the refrain that is repeated after everyone is introduced is, and he died. And he died. And he died. It's, it's like catastrophe in a neon sign saying, this is not the way things were supposed to be. And by the time we get to chapter 6, God looks out over the state of humanity. And what we learn is that he sees that the inclination of every human heart was only evil all the time. And God judges the world in a flood. But that's not the end of the story. Because with the sons of Noah, God begins again. And that promise of God from the beginning that the serpent's head would be crushed, that line, that holy line, would continue through the son of Noah named Shem. And Shem knows the Lord and spreads the knowledge of the Lord. But as we continue through the story, when we get to the genealogy of Terah, the father of Abram, Something very catastrophic has happened, and you need to pick up on it to get what's happening. Things have taken a turn for the worst. They've gone very wrong. And the evidence of the text shows us that by the time we get to Terah, this one ray of hope through the line of Shem has gone dim. The one family that was preserving the knowledge of the true and living God has lost their grip on the faith. Think about it. It's like a land with no church and no ministry and no one to share the hope of the gospel. Imagine that. This is what's happening here. And this hopelessness, this darkness, is taught to us, is expressed to us in a couple of ways. First, and the names of the people in the text, Terah, Sarai, and Milcah, if you look back at where their names come from, they are all named after Mesopotamian moon deities, which is to say they are all named after false gods because that was what they worshipped. They're steeped in idolatry. You see it in their names. The last family, the last hope has gone over to idolatry. And not only is this hopelessness, this darkness, this despair expressed in the names in the text, it's also expressed in the location. Ur of the Chaldeans was a center of worship for a lunar deity, a moon god. Worship of the creation rather than the creator. And then when they moved on from Ur of the Chaldeans, they stop in Haran on their journey across the Fertile Crescent to Canaan. They stop actually in Haran, another center of lunar worship family is steeped in idolatry expressed in the location. The last godly family in the narrative has now lost their grip on the true God, and they, they have exchanged the truth of God for the lies of idolatry. And they have capitulated to the ways of their surrounding culture, and they're living in the same dark state as the rest of the world. But just when you think things are bad, they get worse. Because if you look at chapter 11, verse 30 in the text, you put your eyes on it, the text tells us that this hopelessness, this darkness is also expressed in their situation. So we see the darkness in the names of the characters. We see the darkness and hopelessness in the locations mentioned in the text. And we also see it in the situation in which they find themselves. Look at verse 30. It tells us, 
Sarai was barren. She had no child. And in this cultural moment in the ancient Near East, this failure to be able to produce an heir was a major calamity for the family because it meant extreme vulnerability. They didn't have any 401ks or retirement homes that, that folks could go to to have some kind of security if their family wasn't there to take care of them. All they had was their children as their future security, as their protection for the future. And those who didn't have children could only look down the future and see a great fearful reality awaiting them. And the heartbreak, because their name would not be passed on, their resources would not be passed on. There is a hopelessness in this text. And to punctuate the hopeless picture of this text, we see the narrator telling us that death continues to haunt this family. First, Abram's brother dies. Then his father dies. Are you getting a sense of the picture here? Are you getting a sense of the deep hopelessness here? And, and are you getting a sense of how God's word is ever relevant to anybody who's going through some stuff? Anybody going through some stuff out there know that God sees you and God has a mind to speak to you, to speak hope to you. It's in this context of idolatry, barrenness, hopelessness, and death that the Lord acts, that the Lord calls Abram. Look at verse 1. The Lord just appears out of nowhere. Things are completely devastating for this family right now. And then the Lord appears. He shows up and says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The Lord calls Abram. God breaks through. And at the beginning of the story, we see that just as God in Genesis chapter 1 called the entire creation into existence, now the Lord calls his people into existence. The way you should hear chapter 12 verse 1 is in the spirit of chapter 1 of Genesis verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Where there was only darkness, where there was nothing good, God speaks. And all of a sudden, there is light in a similar way. Where there was only family darkness, where there was only despair and hopelessness, God speaks to Abram and calls him. But there are some very important ideas to draw from this call. What do you get from this text? I know that as I read through this text, some of you may have gotten a little sleepy. The names and the places, it's just hard to choke down this early on a Sunday morning. Well, let me break it down to you. What do you see in this text? What is here for you? What riches lie here for your possession? First thing we see in this text is the extraordinary grace of God. We learn from this context that we just covered it was a terrible mess of difficulties. But the Lord is not deterred by the mess. He's not overwhelmed by it. Neither the sin of idolatry, the heartache of childlessness, the despair of hopelessness, nor the sting of death keeps the Lord from accomplishing his plans for redemptive good. 
You see in this text that God is the fireman who runs toward the burning building. He's the doctor who moves toward the sick and wounded patient. He is the search and rescue team who goes out after the lost and endangered. This passage is meant to orient us to the character of God, and there is nothing that comes through so powerfully as the fact that this text is grace from top to bottom and front to back. It's all of grace. Full strength grace, unfiltered grace, undiluted grace. And the nature of grace comes through to us on the facts of the text. Check it out. Just a surface cursory reading of the text shows us that nobody in this text is looking for the Lord or seeking his help. But God comes looking to offer help. That's grace. Nobody in this text can think their way out of the troubles. But God unfolds the redemptive plan that's on his mind. That's grace. Nobody in this text can spend their way out of the pain. But God spends the rest of the story describing how he will redeem and ultimately remove their pain. That's grace. God is not helping those who have helped themselves. He's helping those who have hurt themselves. That's grace. God is not waiting for the accursed to straighten up. His blessing lifts them up. That's grace. God is not waiting for the spiritually blind to see. He's not waiting for the spiritually deaf to hear. He's giving sight and he's giving hearing. That is grace. God isn't waiting for anybody to clean themselves up, to make a New Year's resolution, to turn over a new leaf. He takes the initiative to rescue. That's grace. The Christian faith and the Christian life is all together of grace. Don't you see? Grace is the fuel in the engine. Grace is the foundation of our house. Grace is the operating system on our computer. Grace is the compass for our journey. We are the reason why God made grace. The redemptive plan, the initiative, the decision, the calling... They all begin with a God who is absolutely chock full of grace. He's brimming with grace. And this text shows us that God's community begins in grace, is sustained and carried along by grace, and will finish in grace. What is sufficiently clear in this passage, I want you to see, is that apart from the intervening grace of God, Humanity would have only continued to spiral down into hopelessness, despair, and ultimately death. This is an intervention. This is an inbreaking of God and all of his goodness. The Lord is gracious. He's the sovereign initiator here. And because grace is the ground of all God's dealings with us. Because grace is the ground, God's good plans cannot be outdone by your sinfulness, by your weakness, by your foolishness, or your insufficiencies. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. That is good news. 
How often do we spend our time fretting about what our mistakes, our weaknesses, and our failures have wrought? How often do we feel like our whole future has been foreclosed on because of something that we have done or some way that we have failed or some mistake that we have made? This text comes in and says, take heart. God is full of grace. And if you think that God is keeping some kind of ledger with you, you have missed the entire point of the Christian faith. If you think God is angry and scowling at you and that his affection for you wavers with your performance, you have missed it. You have missed the good news. The good news is that God has been like this since the beginning and there was nothing in you or about you, no promise in you that shifted his affection, that produced his affection. Your hardest boss, old school theologian, once said this. He said, the surest sign that God will never stop loving us is the fact that he never began. Somebody ought to get that. The surest sign that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. His love is eternal. It's ageless. Before you came to be, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, God set his love upon you. His grace has been available for you. That's good news for people like us. If you've been around the Christian faith for a while, this may be old news to you. But I want you to know that even though it's old news, it's still good news. <laughs> this is the good news. God. Look at who he is. Look at what he's like. All of the actions of God flow from the character of God. What is the good news of God? Just look at him. Look at what he's like. Look at what you can expect of this God. Think about how that changes your life and the way you think about your life and the way you think about your relationships and the way you think about what is possible. The way you think about your troubles, the way you process your sufferings and your pains. Look at this God. First thing we see is the extraordinary grace of God. The second thing we see is the extraordinary heart of God. Check this out. Do you see it in the text? God wants something unimaginably unimaginably better for Abram and his family than they want for themselves. I'm going to say that again. God wants something unimaginably better for Abram and his family than they want for themselves. In his call to Abram, the Lord promises a nomad a homeland, a place of belonging. The Lord promises a barren couple that they'll have so many children it'll become a nation. This is this is great. He promises a man who is bearing the effects of the fall and the curse that he will bless him. In this passage, the word bless, barak, is used five times. And biblical scholars tell us that the reason why bless shows up five times in this passage is because curse shows up five times in chapters 3 through 11. So what the narrator is signaling for us is that the grace that is coming, the blessing that is coming, is going to overwhelm the curse. He's setting expectations for the rest of the story. God's grace and his blessing will prevail over the curse. 
This is, this is, this is the narrator of Genesis's way of saying what Paul said. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Come on. And if, and if, listen, this is what I want to say to you this morning. This is why this matters to you. If God wanted more for Abram and his family than they wanted for themselves, then you better believe that God wants better for you and I than we want for ourselves. Don't you realize, do you think you're committed to you? You aren't even close to being as committed to your flourishing and good as the Lord is. You can't even comprehend or fathom how committed and devoted the Lord is to your good. Again, that's more good news. But what's that mean? What's that mean? It means this. When God calls you to go in a different direction than you wanted. When he frustrates your plans to bring you onto his plan. When he gives you what you didn't want and he takes away what you did. <laughs> Consider Abram and remember that there is something better for me on the other side of this than I was ever out to get. You would have settled. You would have settled for copper, but he was trying to give you gold. You get what I'm saying? He's always out to give you more than what you were looking for. And if you want to have confidence in the shifting circumstances of life, then stop reading the tea leaves of providence, which is unclear. This event unfolds in my life, and we get to interpreting what God is doing in it. Right? Stop reading the tea leaves of providence to try and figure out who God is and what God's like and what he's up to. And start orienting to the gracious heart of God that's been revealed in his word. How can, how can it be that God says in his word that he is utterly for you? And you draw the conclusion from circumstances that he's against you. Because you're trying to read the tea leaves of providence rather than listening to the revealed word of God that tells you what he's about and who he is. Because I want you to understand something. When God came to Abram, Abraham could have said this. Oh, well, if you're so great, God, then why did all this stuff happen to me? Why did my brother die? Why did my father die? Why are we childless? How can you say you're great and that you're going to do great things for me if these are the circumstances in which I'm living? That's what Abraham could have said. But that's not what he says. He didn't say anything. You see the wordless Abram in here? He doesn't get a word in this narrative. He just responds. Sometimes you just got to shut up and follow. Be quiet. Stop arguing with the Lord. Listen, follow. This is what we see in Abram here. A, a great confidence. He judges the Lord on his word, which reveals his gracious heart. Abram's response is an expression of faith and, listen, a renunciation of control. It's an expression of faith and a renunciation of control. He takes the Lord at his word. And listen, the circumstances of his life very well could have caused him to start grasping for control, to try and control things. But the Lord's gracious promise gives him every reason to renounce control. God's heart is to undo every bit of the curse by the power of his blessing. And ultimately, the blessing that the Lord has in mind for Abram is so overwhelmingly abundant 
that it cannot be received by this one man, and it cannot be received in one lifetime. It spills over from generation to generation like a fountain from the Lord that just continues to roll on through the ages to all of the family of Abram. Big Daddy. That's good news, y'all. And as Israel, think about this. So there are a couple different angles from which we need to think about this text. We are reading this text as 21st century people. But the original audience for whom this text was written, they're somewhere in between Egypt and the promised land. This is original Israel. And as they're hearing this, they're realizing, check it out, that their very existence is proof positive of a promise kept. They know that their whole existence is because God keeps his promises. There would have been no Israel if God wasn't faithful to his promises. And not only this, they are also being reminded of the fact that God's redeeming love and all of his benefits are not supposed to dead end with them. They are to be shared with the world, which brings us to our next point, orienting to God's mission. Listen carefully to God's vision here. Look at the text. In the call of Abraham and the creation of this new people, this is what God says. He's doing all this. I will bless you so that, purpose or result, anytime you see so that in the Bible, it's either expressing purpose, result, or a mixture of the two. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing with the result that, for the purpose that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, this mission is the purpose and result of the call to Abram. You see a particular grace to a particular man in a particular family that is meant to have a universal impact. God never blesses you just for you. He blesses you to be a blessing. He fills your life with goodness so you can spread it. He fills your life with grace so you can share it. He fills your life with all of his goodness so that you can give it away like you're made of it. Because the Lord has not given up on his plan from the beginning. If you go back to the beginning of the story, God's plan was that his image bearers, who he placed into Eden, they were not native to Eden. They were placed in Eden, and they were supposed to cultivate it so much so that the whole world became an Eden. That was the calling. That was the mission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I want my replicas all over the place declaring my glory, and I want this whole creation to flourish because of your work. That was the original plan. Guess what? The plan hit a hitch in, in, in Genesis chapter 3. But here, God resumes the plan. He resumes the plan because he wants the whole world to be filled with his glory. And what is absolutely critical for us to understand from this passage is that the Lord doubles down on his original mission in the call to Abram. God's plan was not to return to Eden. It was to go beyond Eden to something even more beautiful and cultivated. And this plan comes to its fulfillment in the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Check it out. When you come to this text, where it ultimately leads you to is the reality that was that one day, God the Father said to the Son, go from your country and your father's house to the land I will show you. 
Christ is the promised son of Abram, the blessed one through whom every tribe, tongue, and nation has been blessed. And we see the extraordinary grace of God and the extraordinary heart of God in the advent of the extraordinary son of God. And that extraordinary grace and that extraordinary heart were most profoundly portrayed to us, revealed to us when the blessed one, Jesus Christ, took the curse that deservedly hung over us so that he could give us the blessing that deservedly hung over him. That's grace. And when you are deeply oriented to God's grace, then you will be deeply oriented to God's mission. There's a connection here. You will identify as one who has been blessed by Christ to be a blessing. You will be a humble servant. You will be a joyful giver. You will be a grateful worshiper. You will be a faithful witness. Through our adoption into God's family, check this out, we also become the seed of Abraham. And we continue this ministry of blessing the world by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, it all boils down to the seed of Abram, Jesus Christ. But because we're in union with him by faith and we've been adopted into God's family, we are the seed that continues the ministry of blessing the world with the blessings we've received. So what does this look like in our lives? I have Six things I want to run through real quick. Like God. <laughs> I'm just out here trying to follow the Holy Spirit in 2024. <laughs> All right. First, like God, we graciously take initiative to do good. We don't wait for people to become deserving. We take initiative to do good. That's one. Two. Like God, we enter into messes that we did not create in order to bring flourishing and goodness to people. Just like God did to Abraham and to us, we do to the world. We enter into hopeless situations, darkness, brokenness, despair with a word of good news. Three, we renounce our desire to control things. I want to invite you to that. Renounce your desire to control things. This isn't dropping your responsibilities or, or shirking your, your tasks or being passive or disengaged. It's a wise discernment between what is God's work and what is my work. If you find control and needing to control is when you decide God is not doing a good enough job and you need to fire him and take over the reins. That sounds kind of crazy, right? So that's a discernment thing. Four, take hope in your sufferings and the mess of life. Look at what God did in Abraham's messy story. Do you see that? And be curious about what he could do in yours. Be curious, okay? Five, interrogate yourself. What aspects of your life have yet to be oriented to the grace of God? And how will you tell? You will be able to tell by how deeply oriented you are to the mission of God. You will only be disoriented from the mission of God if you are disoriented from the grace of God. Anyone who is deeply oriented to grace will be deeply oriented to mission. Okay? Six, share your story of grace. I want to demystify evangelism for you. Evangelism is not a manipulative strategy to employ. It's a redemptive story to tell. The one thing that people will grant you is the power to narrate your own story. Well, how do you narrate your story? And how do you make commentary on how God's grace has put you where you are, has provided and met you? Okay? That's what I want you all to do. 
It's not just a new world that we're trying to help people see. It's a new lens through which to see it. My acceptance to NYU didn't just affect my academic life. It changed everything about me and who I would become. But here's the thing. If acceptance and orientation to college could have such a transformative effect on my life, how much more can the acceptance of God and orientation to his grace transform all of our lives? Let's receive this grace from God. Let's delight in this grace. Let's live by this grace. And we will indeed be a blessing, not only to Northeast DC, but to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.